0: And of course, none of these are one size fit all endeavors. It really has to do with the property itself. And just because one deal works well with one type of loan doesn't mean that it'll work well with another type. So you need to really have that flexibility and have the right partners in place that understands all the potential options that you have that will be best for your scenario.
1: This is Cashflow Multipliers, the podcast dedicated to your financial freedom for the lifestyle you deserve.
0: Hello, hello, Cashflow Multipliers team. Welcome back. We're so glad you're here. It means so much to us to have this incredible loyal and smart investors tuning in to us once or twice a week. Definitely. So your time means
1: a lot to us, and we want to
0: ensure you're getting what you
1: came for. That's why today we're giving you a well-rounded picture of a topic a lot of passive investors don't take into consideration financing options.
0: Nan, would you say this is a decision that mostly apartment operators and syndicators make normally, right?
1: Correct, Palm. Normally, when it comes to financing options, especially when it comes to commercial real estate, passive investors take the hand-off approach. Really putting the word passive into practice. Who determines how each syndication deal will be financed usually lies with the general partners or the sponsorship teams.
0: Nan is correct. However, we think we know you guys well enough to guess that even as passive investors, financing is an important topic you want to know about, you know, to see what happens behind the scenes. We've never been one
1: for, you know, the spotlight. So when it comes to behind the scene work,
0: you, you
1: know, we're your girls.
0: And maybe you're the same way. Honestly, being passive investors is a surefire way to get into action without having to do any of, you know, the
1: actual work (laughs) or action. That's absolutely true. You make money with your eyes closed. However, being educated on financing gives you, you know, a little edge. As a passive investor, these are the topics that make you a little...
0: Dangerous. Oh, wow. Dangerous? (laughs) We just said no action and they get dangerous.
1: (laughs) I mean, in the sense of keeping others on the toes, you don't want to walk into a webinar without asking the right questions or, you know, knowing what to look for. Right, Palm?
0: Absolutely true. This topic of financing is just as important as securing the right deal or raising equity. And as sponsors ourselves, we spend a lot of time weighing the pros and cons of banks and agency products, both on the front and back end of every apartment syndication deal that we get into.
1: Yes. And all those hours talking to lenders and reviewing loan contracts, it only makes sense to share what we have learned and give you all the insight into how the sausage is made. Right off the bat, there is a huge difference between a commercial loan and a a residential loan. Residential loans are conventionally more cookie-cutter because a lot of people are looking to buy homes, not, you know, like the full buildings.
0: But for those lucky enough to get into the underbelly of commercial loans and financing, there's nothing cookie-cutter or cutesy about it.
1: If residential financing is Barbie, neatly packaged, and pretty in pink, Commercial financing is your Great Aunt Pioneer doll collection. <laughs> there are maybe too many of them and slightly off-putting.
0: And by too many, we mean there are a multitude of options for commercial loans to choose from and which one you choose can heavily impact your cash flow and sell proceeds. The good news is there's no one right or wrong, but knowing the differences and equipping ourselves with the knowledge will help us determine which loan products will work best for your next investment.
1: So to kick things off, what is a commercial loan? The simple definition of a commercial loan is any property with five or more units. This includes smaller single-family units all the way to full-scale thousands of units of building, right? Taking out commercial loans can feel daunting and downright scary. Pointing back to the creepy doll collection analogy here, but not impossible.
0: This is a process we believe you cannot take any shortcuts on, but understanding how it works. Gaining the right knowledge and listening to this podcast, the Cashflow Multipliers, of course, will help you understand the best positions to be in in order to buy the properties that you want that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do so with cash. And
1: for more on that topic, be sure to listen to Cashflow Multiplier Episode 8, Actually, Debt is a Good Thing, where we dig deep onto the topic of good debt versus bad debt. And spill the real tea about how the rich get richer and how the littlest effort can generate maximum result. And while people are scared, here's the thing debt is still really cheap here. As you know, inflation has arrived. So, what this mean is that we're buying apartment buildings at today's dollar and paying it off with tomorrow less value dollars. And we're all, along with like other passive investors, are not even paying off the debt ourselves. Guess who are paying it? Our tenants, right?
0: And that's why we love apartment investing. So what exactly are we looking for when it comes to these commercial loans? And how will it affect our investments? So glad you asked. Yes. So here are seven financing components an apartment investor need to pay attention to before selecting a commercial real estate loan. And past investors need to keep a pause on as well.
1: Yes. So... First on the list to keep an eye out for is the interest rate. Anyone who has ever pulled out any type of loan, including student loans, is familiar with this one. How it relates to apartment syndication, though, is through the rate. The rate will determine what the sponsorship costs are going to be. Palm, can you explain what is an interest rate?
0: Sure. An interest rate refers to an amount charged by the lender to the borrower for any form of debt. It goes without saying the higher the interest rate means that the higher the cost of doing the transaction. Well, Nan, there's a rumor going on, right? Yes. The rumor right now is that interest rates are at an all-time high. But actually it's not true.
1: You see, the interest rates we're seeing right now are still lower than what we were willing to pay back in, you know, in 2018, 2019. Keep in mind your general partners underwrite the interest rate at whatever the current rate is. So that means if you see an 80% or 100% return later down the line, it's still a great deal. Don't let the rising interest rate deter your choices here. These are opportunistic time.
0: Yeah. So just to reiterate what Nan is saying is like when we see whatever the expected interest rate is, it doesn't mean it's automatically a bad deal. They account for it into their modeling. And so therefore, the 80 to 10, 100% return that an investor or a GP team is putting out there, that would already account for the rise in the interest rate. Now, as of this podcast recording, the projected going in rate for one of our deals is 3.5%. So Nan, as you know, I love numbers. I love data. <laughs> yes, my data cookie country So recently in our most recent acquisition in Houston, Texas, we performed several different type of sensitivity or stress test in order to see what will happen the worst case scenario on the property. It's one thing for us to shine all the great light and give like flowers to the best results possible. But at the same time, to be responsible as a responsible GP, we need to look at the worst case scenario as well. One of the stress tests that we performed Nan, was the increase in interest rate stress test, right?
1: Yes, I love that that we did that yeah. chart that you create that was amazing
0: so basically what we looked at was assuming that so now we know that we're expecting to have an entry cap rate around 3.5 percent. but to be conservative we actually underwrote it for four percent at four percent you mean the interest rate the interest rate yeah that's correct thanks nan so basically in that case like even at four percent our projected return for that property was hundred percent return okay follow me here not going to be too long on this math stuff. So basically, we stress test what would happen if the interest rate actually creeps up to 6%. Well, guess what? It actually barely impacted the overall return. Uh, It's still like in the 90s percent. So even if the interest rate increases by two whole points, which if you hear the news, it make it sound like everything's going to like it's a calamity, the world's going to end, it's absolutely not the case. And so as we talked about earlier, like the most important thing is like you have to account for what interest rate will be and have a really realistic picture of that. And if you do and you account for it properly, it's not going to really significantly impact return. So what you're saying is that we underwrote for four percent, and the total overall
1: return is a hundred percent. but when the interest rate increases by two points.
0: So like to 6%. Yeah. The total return is still almost 100%. Correct. Oh, wow. Cool. The second thing to look out for is the loan-to-value ratio. So the loan-to-value ratio represents the ratio of debt in relation to the value of the underlining asset. The LTV, as it's sometimes referred to, is used to quantify borrowers' maximum leverage on a loan. So
1: getting the most bang for your buck,
0: loan addition, right? <laughs> exactly, Nan. By not lending the full purchase price, the lender is reducing the level of risks involved, but plot twist here, enter LTC. The LTC is a formula and the formula is loan amount divided by total value.
1: In today's market, it is very common for an LTC to be around 65 to 75% and sometimes a bit higher, all which depend on many factors. For example, in a certain economic climate, you don't want a high leverage, right? You want to make sure you don't have to do any major capex to add income so that you can pay off the mortgage.
0: Yep, this goes back to the strategy and the business plan put in place to not only maximize the profit, but also minimize the risk. A word of caution, while it may be rational to try to get the highest LTV because debt is cheap, this may also increase the investor's exposure. For example, if the general partner gets a 95% LTV, there's a really no income wiggle room. So if there's any changes in the market, they may be in trouble.
1: Okay, third thing here, Palm. Let's talk about the difference in the type of loan you can get. The biggest differentiator between the bank and agency apartment financing is whether the loan is recourse or non-recourse. So what's the difference between a recourse and a non-recourse loan, Palm?
0: You know, when we first started in multifamily apartments, this is one of the greatest thing that I heard when we were getting into it. It's like non-recourse versus recourse. So we know that in single family homes, most, if not all of the debt secured is recourse debt, right? So you personally guarantee the asset. Non-recourse means that the debt is secured only by the loan collateral, like your apartment complex itself. So if you default on a non-recourse loan, the lender can only recoup the pledged collateral, aka the apartment. So whatever you're Your state is in as as you you state it as your collateral. That is what they're going to be able able to go after. Your personal assets are safe. And this is a huge benefit with working with non-recourse lenders. Your liability is protected.
1: As for recourse loan, this is where apartment financing from a bank usually comes in. Also, this is where you tend to put a lot more on the line liability wise. The sponsors are personally liable for the full loan amount in the event of default not just what was pledged, right? So this means that if an apartment does not sell for the price that covers the loan amount, the lender can go after asset that were not used as a loan collateral. Kind of risky. And obviously, this method wouldn't be wise, right? Like the Kitty sister would not approve.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And also the other consideration is that typically, smaller apartment complexes will have no choice but to use recourse debt. So this is something probably $1 to $2 million range, which is, in today's market, very small.
1: Yes, and that's why we always say go after like apartment that are like 65 unit or above.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. This is one of the major benefit of buying larger assets for sure. Sometimes bank will also offer non-recourse loan, non-recourse financing, but the risk is often reflected in a higher interest rate you, That's you're going to have to make up somehow.
1: Did you know that Sally Mae, your favorite student loan association, has parents and their name are... Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And they raise Sally like right since they are loan agency themselves as they used by people who are looking to buy or refinance apartment buildings that are specific to non-recourse loans.
0: That family has a way of getting you paid. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> While the non-recourse loans offered by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac might help you sleep better at night since they aren't going to be going after any of your personal or, or you're going to have any liability on those on, on those loans, recourse loans tend to offer more flexibility when it comes to loan structure and pricing. Why? Because it's more uh. difficult to recoup
1: on a non-recourse loan. Lenders are going to impose more restriction on what can be done on apartment building here's a key thing here to look for. Your goal should be the same no matter what loan agency you choose. We're going to say this again. Your goal should be the same no matter, you know, the loan agency you choose. You want to keep the apartment asset competitive and in good repair. And most importantly, make sure the building sells to cover the cost of the loan. Fannie and Freddie also need to secure that bag, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. As such, loan provisions might include capital expenditures and maintenance schedules. Which, if you're on top of it, it's no biggie. Non-recourse multifamily loans are typically structured with a floating interest rate spread over an index, which is typically the thirty-day average SOFR or the thirty-day SOFR average. S O F R. Wow, that's a lot. S O F R average, right? Well, I'm sorry.
1: Did you did you just say a floating interest rate over an index? Uh
0: huh. Yeah. I know you were thinking of banana
1: floats. <laughs> <laughs> well, please elaborate because those are all words. I'm sure several people didn't even realize can go together.
0: Yeah. I know. So fair enough. So, so floating interest rate is one that changes periodically. The interest rate moves up and down or floats reflecting the economic or financial markets conditions. So
1: another term for floating could be adjusting. Got it. And what business does the floating interest rate have spreading over an index?
0: So for this, we're going to look into two different parts. The spread represents the risk associated for the borrower, which tends to happen in the spread of variable rate products, which remains the same. Therefore, the borrower's variable interest rate will change. For example, in referencing that same Houston deal that we're acquiring, we're able to negotiate 320 basis point or 3.20% spread. What does this mean? So the entry interest rate will be that spread, 320 basis point, plus the 30 day SOFR average. So from the time from the day of be- one day before closing. So as of the recording of this podcast, currently the 30 day average for the SOFR is 30 basis point or 0.30%. Plus the 320 basis point or 3.20 equals 3.5% interest rate. Now we already talked to you about how we were conservative and our interest rate going in was 4% so this represents a theoretical spread or difference or delta between what will actually end up paying at the beginning of the loan versus what we underwrote for. Yes.
1: Yeah, so a lot of changes in interest rate and what that means for the borrowers. I mean, like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac products are already aware of this, right?
0: They totally are. And their rates can be locked into a fixed rate and can offer better and long term fixed rate loans than a traditional bank can offer if you're looking to set it and forget it. Agency also have
1: the benefit of higher leverage, which tops out at about like eighty percent loan to value (LTV) in certain market. Bank usually top out around seventy-five percent LTV. Hopefully, now you can start seeing the advantage of going with Ferry and Fanny, which is um, Sally and May's (laughs) parents, but also infer which agency align with your goals and investment.
0: But there's also a third option which we haven't mentioned yet. That's
1: bridged loans. Yep, that's the benefit of bridge loan is that they are easy to get approved for. But these loans could, you know, should only be used by really experienced general partners as it come with higher risk.
0: One of those major risks is timing. Since bridge loans tend to be a shorter time loan instead of the longer 10 to 12 year that you can get with Freddie or Fannie. Bridge loans offer a three-year loan with an option for one two-year extension. So that equals to five years.
1: The risk can be obvious, especially in this case of you know, our current situation, our economy, if the economy softens and the apartment market drives up, then there's a high risk of default if the borrower is unable to refinance into a long term agency loan.
0: Yeah, and that goes with people who underwrite deals too aggressively. That may be a definite issue when the market softens. However, if you are underwriting conservatively and going back to the LTV, where we use a lower LTV number, the risk is mitigated definitely by that. Yes. So for us, again, we're mitigating the risk. Another way we mitigate risk for bridge loans is we purchase what's called cap rate insurance. So typically what happens is because there's a variable rate, and you guys heard in 2008 how people who had a variable rate um, loans it ballooned and they couldn't cover the payment. The difference here is that once you buy a cap rate insurance, there's a ceiling on how the how high the rate can go up. For example, in our scenario, let's say we assume 4% interest and then we buy a cap rate of 2%. Mm-hmm. That means that the interest rate cannot be charged to us beyond 6%. And since we've already done a great stress test that tells us like the return is going to be substantial even at a 6% interest rate and we have a cap there, we're going to be really safe. Our investors are going to be really safe. Here's the bottom line, though. We're trying to communicate that, you know, when you're picking a loan, the sponsorship team really needs to keep in mind your profit. And of course, none of these are one size fits all endeavors. It really has to do with the property itself. And that's why, like Nan said, this is not a cookie cutter thing like single family home. And just because one deal works well with one type of loan doesn't mean that it'll work well with another type. So you need to really have that flexibility and have the right partners in place that understands all the potential options that you have that will be best for your scenario. Yeah,
1: so I guess you really say it's the dealer's choice and their expertise.
0: Absolutely. And it's really critical. I think one of the things that's going to make or break a lot of investments right now are people who actually understand what they're doing and understand how to negotiate really great loan terms and understand getting the, the correct
1: loan, correct. right? Like the lending.
0: Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So now moving on to the fourth thing, terms. Applying for loan is always the easy part. But the terms, the fine print, that's a totally different story.
1: Terms and conditions tend to be the worst part when it comes to buying just about anything these days. Have like, have you guys bought like a concert ticket recently? Like, we get it. Take all my data. I just need to get these tickets, right?
0: Yeah, and the little clock on the corner. Count down until until you, your ticket disappears from your cart. Anxiety inducing. I've been there. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that just makes us want to just accept everything on the term as quickly as possible. However, when it comes to real estate commercial loans, you have to pay attention to the details of the loan very closely. And those terms will be dependent on your business plan. For example, if your investment opportunity whole period is five years, it may make sense to get a floater interest rate loan.
1: Because as we learned earlier, a floating interest rate changes throughout the life of the loan. It depends on the economy, really, guys. The rate might then adjust or float for the rest of the
0: loan's life. Okay, so where do we stand on floater versus fixed loan? Our answer is, it depends. There is a season where we may prefer fixed or floating interest rate. And just like people, no loan is perfect. In the past, fixed interest rate loans were popular choice because it was viewed as low risk since the interest rate is low risk. Right? low risk because the interest rate is set and forget it. It also provides a lower predictability for duration of the loan term, which is typically 8 to 10 to 12 years.
1: But... Most multifamily apartment syndications purchases are not the long-term investments, at least for the Kitty sister case. If you're investing like, you know, and it's, you're, we always aim to, you know, exit within like two to five years, the prepayment penalty the loan comes with may be too exorbitant for the investment to make sense. This is especially true when the interest rate is relatively low, which has been the case in the last few years, guys. As the interest rate rises, at some point, it may make more sense to go with a fixed interest loan.
0: On the other hand, there's a floating interest rate, which offers greater flexibility in a time of relatively stable interest rates. Believe it or not, back in the day, floating rates used to be the bad guy. (laughs) But the loan interest rates, it's actually becoming lower risk strategy. But then you have
1: those people who want to have the cake and eat it too. Which is, on a side note, never makes sense to us. If you have the cake, just eat. What's stopping you?
0: Absolutely. So, well, most borrowers will elect to take out a floating rate with an insurance rate cap, which we went over. So that definitely has some ability for people to like eat the cake and have it too. <laughs> as an insurance rate cap is, as insurance policy, again, to to set the maximum interest rate the borrower would need to be responsible for. So we're telling you the story to illustrate a point.
1: One of the Our Property Purchases last year, we used a floating rate. Our loan entry interest rate was 3.15% with a cap of 50 basis point, which means that during the loan terms, our interest payments will never exceed 3.65%, which keep us safe on the cash flow side while providing us with an extremely flexible exit strategy. With this type of flexibility and safety, we had a couple options. The first one is to sell the property in, you know, year 2 or year 3 without taking any prepayment penalty or if we decide to hold on to the property for longer, we may choose to refinance into a longer term fixed interest loan. There you have it, our official take on, you know, fixed versus floating loans all come down to one question. What is going to help us get to our goals faster than, you know, anything else with all these flexibility?
0: Yeah. And so like absolutely, absolutely correct. When you're talking about what is your goal, that's really the crux. If you're holding these properties for 10 years, then a fixed debt loan may make sense for you. But if you want that flexibility to exit sooner because you want to have, you know, that your money, your wealth has a need for speed and you want to keep doubling your money in two to three years versus 10 it makes no sense. Be, it will be like a no-brainer. You'll always, 100% of the time, pick the floating rate. So this leads us to the fifth point. The fifth thing is to consider in your loan strategy is the prepayment penalty. The prepayment penalty is a fee charged to commercial borrowers if they pay off their loan earlier than the agreed upon maturity date.
1: So getting punished for being responsible is what it sounds like, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Who
1: gets mad when they get their money back early? apparently loan agencies prepayment penalties often come in form of either step down or prepayment penalty which start at a certain percentage and goes down by 1% every year
0: another type of prepayment that comes in form of yield maintenance yield maintenance requires the borrower to make a payment to the lender that compensates them for the all the interest returns the lender would have gained had the borrower not paid off the loan early
1: so weird right pom
0: Well, I mean, I understand why they're doing it. It, It's definitely different than single family loans for sure.
1: So why are these prepayment penalties, you ask, right? Because the lenders themselves promised their bond investor a certain return and thus basically the penalty covers their investor return shortfall.
0: What we're currently seeing in the market right now is that there's so many investment opportunities that the GP team simply can't sell because of the huge prepayment penalties attached to it. And of course, depending on the loan size, this definitely will be in the millions of dollars and can literally wipe out any of the gains, even though without the penalty, it could have been high 100%, 120%, 115% gains. And the 16 is that we need to look out for is a debt service coverage ratio, aka DSCR. No, Mm -hmm. this is not the name of your next favorite rapper. It's just a simple way to quantify the borrower's ability to pay back the outstanding debt collection. The May family... Or whichever loan agency or, or lender that you go with, that you decide to go with has to make sure that they get their money back.
1: Yes. So the debt service coverage ratio evaluated cash flow to determine if it's sufficient to cover the standard mortgage payment during a pre, um, the payment period.
0: The formula used to determine the DSCR is net operating income or NOI, which we've gone over in previous podcasts divided by the total debt service. Most lenders requires at least a 1.25 DSCR. A 1.25 DSCR. To make the math easy, this means that for every dollar that gets paid to for the mortgage, we get to keep 25 cents.
1: Again, as a passive investor, this is a great insider knowledge on how you can determine if the investment opportunity is well worth it. Find out the DSCR for each investment opportunity. Anything lower than 1.25 DSCR is a red flag. Okay, rounding out to our last pro tip of the day, the seventh thing to look out or when the loan like when loan shopping is the debt yield ratio. The debt yield ratio is a figure that represents the income a property generates in comparison to the amount of a loan that the lender has well lent out.
0: The formula for debt yield is net operating income divided by the loan amount. If a lender uses the debt yield to qualify the loan, typically this will be something they'll look for. A stabilized debt yield at seven or above, debt yield quantification may occur when the within like typically year three. And it, this is typically happens if year one or year two DSER is below 1.25, but no less than one.
1: For us here at the Kitty Sister, when we see a property that is so far under market rent that the capitalization rate seems artificially compressed below the market standard, we make the most out of the opportunity. No wasted lemon around here. we will use the debt year ratio to quantify the tra- attraction of the deal
0: all right that's a lot for today, and we hope Shoo. you're getting, <laughs> We hope you're getting the understanding of some of the finer details and getting to know a little bit more about the May family <laughs> will help you actually better understand and make decisions as a past investor, even as general partners and apartment operators ourselves we're learning every day the ins and out of some of these concepts to be well rounded and educated investors. And while as a passive investor, it would be a nice thing to understand the general concept, there's no need for you to dive into all the details unless you like to. Because ultimately, it's the responsibility of the general partnership team to be responsible and understand all the ins and outs and make sure that they make the best type of loan possible for the deal to make sense.
1: As always, we love hanging out with you guys. And, you know, thank you so much for taking us wherever you go. We can't wait to return in a few days. But before you go, be sure to share this podcast episode, leave us a review and check us out on the website at our website at thekittysisters.com. The link will be in the show note. Talk soon. We can't wait to begin this journey with you. Check us out at thekittysisters.com slash podcast.